Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. William Rhodes, Bill Rhodes, former senior vice chairman at Citigroup, now the CEO of William Rhodes Global Advisors and the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Great to see you. Thanks for, for being here. And um, let's start with some, some contrast here. There's conversation uh, in the U.S. about what might happen to financial uh, regulation. When you look at sort of regulatory objectives uh, in the U.S. versus what's going on in Europe, how wide, a, how yawning a gap is there between the, the two perspectives? Well, I think there's a lot of concern in Europe as to what the new administration here in the United States is going to do on the regulatory front. I don't see uh, that the administration, if it wanted to, has the votes uh, to overturn uh, Dodd-Frank. But I think uh, what will happen is on the regulatory side with the Fed, which is the chief regulator of the banking system, uh, that you'll, you'll have a, a change of policy uh, compared to what Dan Tarullo did, uh, who is now – uh, you know, resigned effectively from uh, uh, from that position at the Fed uh, to the new person who's going to be the senior regulator. I think particularly in the area of small to medium-sized banks. And we'll just have to see where that uh, goes. And uh, uh, one of the big questions is, uh, will they ease up on stress tests for all banks? And that is not clear. Even in Europe, uh, apart from the concern uh, about what we're going to do here, uh, the uh, the situation is different, uh, you know, from what the uh, is on the plate in the UK and continental Europe, because you may see some easing up in the UK. Uh, a lot of the German banks are are, are calling for an easing up um, on some of this regulatory environment uh, in Europe. Bill Rhodes, have we had time here to consider the legacy of Dan Tarullo at this point? How he shaped that that job, and indeed what um, what his successor, how how, the, how his successor may follow in his footsteps. Well, I think Dan Tarullo uh, felt that uh, the big banks in particular <clears throat> uh, had really messed the, the economy up mm. going into the Great Recession. And his way of dealing with this was to constantly raise capital standards uh, in many different ways and at the, uh, at the same time uh, insist that, uh, that the banks, uh, you know, do very tough stress testing uh, at least twice a year. And the question is, will that, uh, will that uh, particular uh, Tarullo mandate change uh, under uh, a, a new regulator who will be appointed there by the administration? And, and my answer, I think, is yes. You've written recently about reputational risk, looking at all of the risks that banks face and sort of saying that reputational risk is, par- is paramount in terms of uh, importance to the institutions themselves. D- does the government have power to sort of enforce or make a bank care more about reputational risk, or is that something that has to come from within? Well, basically, reputational risk, uh, uh, in my mind, is, is the most serious risk at all, because if you lose your reputation, you can go out of business. And that's been a big challenge to the banking uh, sector here in the United States and in Europe coming out of the Great uh, Recession. 
Uh, and every institution has a different history, different traditions, and they basically have to set up their own uh, cultural uh, arrangement. Uh, the regular, you can't do that, or a supervisor. But what they can do is track uh, whether the institution is keeping up with its own, uh, with mm. its own uh, you know, set of rules. And uh, this, I think, is key because if regulation, in effect, uh, is downgraded, there's all the more importance for reputational risk, uh, which is based on culture and conduct. And I think that was one of the failures of so many of the institutions coming up to the Great Recession. And so I think the idea of having a good culture uh, will reflect in the conduct. And the regulators and supervisors are going to follow that. And those institutions that don't emphasize culture and conduct are, are a real right. risk going forward. Bill Rhodes with us. Uh, Bill Rhodes Associates, of course, has worked with uh, William Rhodes Associates and his work uh, with uh, Citibank for years. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bill Rhodes, are there too many banks? Is where we're really heading here is mergers, whether the European banks want it or not, and frankly, the U.S. regionals as well. Are we still in a state a la Andrew Jackson where there's too many banks? <laughs> well, I think you're going to see more in the way of merger between small and medium-sized uh, okay. banks in the United States, and I think definitely in Europe, particularly in a country like, uh, like Italy, uh, because you basically have too many banks in Italy, and a number of them have capital okay. problems. What are we waiting for? Do they like to go to lunch or something? I mean, what is taking so long, if it's so obvious to everyone, that there are too many banks? Well, I think uh, banks tend to move slowly, and uh, the governments, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, have been very slow uh, to, to really realize this. And, and this is a role also for the European Central Bank, which is the chief regulator under the banking union. And I think there's been a big difference since its move from the European Banking Authority to the uh, uh, to the ECB, the European Central Bank. The problem there is there's a lot of disagreement on resolution as to what do you do if a bank has a problem and how you do it. And we're seeing that uh, in the case of, of Italy where they put together, uh, you know, a bad uh, bank-type fund. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it's not clear how that's going to work. And we've had similar situations in Portugal. And, and that needs to be regularized over time. Plus, the third leg of the uh, banking union's uh, uh, stool here, so to speak, was deposit insurance. And there, there's not even discussions on that because they're still trying to work out what they're going to do on resolution. And that's key for the economy of Italy in particular. And even in a country like Spain, where you've seen a lot of progress, uh, you, have, you have a problem uh, with one of the medium-sized banks, Banco Popular, over the last few weeks... They had to uh, come forward and say that they had missed declaring $600 million of past due loans in the proper fashion, and so the CEO was forced out by the board. So there's still a lot of work to do, particularly in Southern Europe. When you look at banks on, on each side of the Atlantic, when you look at the leadership of those banks, can you look at it in a binary way? Is there a Cryan, Staley, TM School, and then you've got the U.S. executives as well, or is it, is it more multifaceted than that when it comes to leadership of banks? Well, leadership is key in banking, just like it is in business, and it'll depend on the institution. Mm. Uh, John Cryan inherited a very difficult situation. I think he's doing what he can, uh, and it's, it's going to take a while for Deutsche to come back, which they will come back. Uh, and the reason is that the American bank started much earlier in 2009 to raise capital and write off bad loans. And so I think uh, that's really the lead uh, that the American banking system has over uh, the European banking system. 
How prospective, how forward-looking are banks at this point? Are they still cleaning up what's what's happened to Lothi's a couple of years back, or are they able to look forward now and to sort of chart a new course, what they want banking to be, how they want uh, leadership to look like? Well, I think in the American banking system, yes, they are looking forward. And uh, they very much want to uh, move ahead. They, they feel that they, they're properly capitalized. And uh, so it's a different mentality than with a number of uh, the European banks. Uh, you know, Deutsche Bank uh, is just had to raise new capital. They probably have to raise some more. Credit Suisse had to raise capital just recently. They didn't think they were going to have to. And then, of course, you have the situation of Royal Bank of Scotland, which is still basically in the hands of the government. Mm. And that, you have to remember, when we got to the, uh, uh, to the Great Recession, the largest bank in the world was Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm. Are the banks represented in the Trump administration? Well, my certainly Goldman Sachs is represented. Yeah, yeah, but come on. That's just the, the, the affectation of the time. Very quickly here, are the banks, do they have a visible uh, representative in this administration? Well, I, I think this president uh, has been very open to in, inviting, uh, you know, heads of the private sector. And one of them uh, is Jamie Dimon. Mm -hmm. And I think Jamie... Uh, is one that uh, that this president listens to, as well as his economic team. Yeah. And, and certainly, uh, if you want to say who's the best banker around, right. uh, Jamie is, is right there for that title. Okay, Bill Rose, thank you so much. William Rose, Global Advisors, uh, with us today. David Gura and Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Just a few hours ago, it was announced there's bipartisan agreement on a spending bill that could keep the government open until the end of September, a $1.1 trillion spending bill. Always good to get perspective on what's going on in Washington from Greg Vallier, Chief Global Strategist at Horizon Investments. He joins us this morning from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. Greg out with his latest note saying this is a sign that both parties actually can work together. Greg, is this a classic good deal where neither side is happy? I think so, David. I and mean, call me a hopeless optimist, but I do think it's not a bad deal. The Democrats got a lot of what they wanted. No money for a wall, money for NIH, no, uh, no cuts for uh, Planned Parenthood. And Trump and the Republicans got what they want. They got a lot more money for defense. They got some money for uh, border security. And most importantly, we avoided a shutdown. What does this, this say about how Congress will work on the Trump agenda going forward here? In other words, now that we have spending out of the way, we're getting spending out of the way, what does it say about how they'll work on continue to work on health care, continue to work on tax reform and other big issues? Well, I don't want to get too euphoric yeah. but because I, I, I think the health bill is in trouble. Uh, it might make it in the Senate, but boy, I, I just don't see support for something like this in the Senate where a lot of moderate Republicans think it's radioactive. But I would say the tax cuts are still alive. It's going to take months and months and months. But I think if we can get a deal like this on the budget shutdown, it does show both parties can compromise. You mentioned that there's no money for the, the wall, that fortification on the southern border explicitly, but there is $1.5 in here for border security. What is that going to be used for? Yeah, I think uh, uh, electronic stuff, uh, m more careful screening, uh, maybe more helicopter airplane flights over the border. I mean, it's had a chilling impact on illegal immigration already. So I think Trump, who always wants to claim a victory, yeah. no, matter, no matter what, Trump can claim some victory on this. Uh, uh, Greg, uh, I'm going to rip up the script here. Peter Brack out in Los Angeles just retreats a photo from a big atrium in Manila of the Trump Tower 
And it's a big sprawling screen or photo, I'm going to guess 50 feet long, of Ivanka Trump uh, selling the Trump Tower real estate. How are we doing on the interesting relationship of government and private enterprise of our president? Give us an update. Well, Tom, I mean, there's conflicts everywhere, whether it's his kids, whether it's his wife, whether it's him personally in his hotels and golf courses. There's conflicts everywhere. And I tell my clients, look, there's going to be controversies ad nauseum. However, I think the climate for investors, the climate for the market as right. a whole is pretty good. Did President Bush Sr. have the same conflicts as he was an oil guy in Texas? No, that's a different era. I mean, Trump breaks the rules. He's pretty far outside of the box uh, on a lot of stuff. But, you know, as, as you and I and David have talked before, that this is a very, very pro-business, pro-Wall Street administration. Uh, we've seen signs of that everywhere. So I think, again, if we take the narrow prism of what this means for the markets, this is not yeah. a bad story. What do you make of the uh, the President Duterte news, the president inviting him to the White House? Uh, obviously, we're, we're familiar with his background and record uh, thus far, the controversy surrounding all of this. Why, why do this? When you look at leaders whom he could invite, when you look at geopolitical significance, this seems small compared to others. Why do this, do you think? Yeah, it's Trump being Trump. You know, uh, he had the, the head of Egypt in who has a similarly... Uh, unfavorable human rights record. I mean, he is attracted to very, very strong uh, dictators who sometimes trample on human rights. That's just, uh, that's just Trump being Trump. I want to ask you about the, the, the role that uh, his advisors are playing at this point, especially when it comes to tax reform or health care reform. Four of them? All, all four <laughs> of them. But we saw Gary Cohn there and, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin rolling out, being the face of uh, this tax reform plan. And we know that Steve Mnuchin is going to be at the Milken Global Conference this yep. week talking uh, more about it. Uh, why, why pick them to do it? How are they doing? And, and what's the message that they're carrying here, these two guys? Well, first of all, t Tom made a joke, but it was uh, half serious, I'm sure, in, in that this group is really understaffed. I mean, they uh, don't even have a, a third of the aids that they need in all government agencies to get things done. That said, I think Cohn in particular is first rate. Uh, he knows Washington. He knows how to get things done. Uh, I think he's going to be a major driver on this bill. And uh, I, I do think that, you know, people like to knock Goldman Sachs. But if you're an investor, if you're just looking at the markets, having a Goldman Sachs dominance in this White House is a good story. Oh, well, go, go ahead, ahead, David. Please, no, I was just going to ask right, who you're listening to of the two of them. I, I've been struck by how more at ease Steve Mnuchin seems now when he's speaking, starting at that IIF conference before the, the IMF meeting. Yeah, the uh, word on Mnuchin a month or so ago is that he had a, a lot to learn, that there, was, uh, there were many uh, aspects of tax reform he was not familiar with, but I think he's a quick study. I think Cohn has sharp elbows and also is a quick study. I wouldn't underestimate either of these two guys. Greg, thank you so much. Greg Villiers with us, Horizon Investments, uh, writing a really sharp uh, elbow. You know, talk about sharp elbows. A sharp elbow morning note, uh, David Gura, from Greg Villiers. He really cuts to the chase. We could live exquisitely, David Gura. Uh -huh. Trump Tower Manila, the Philippines' most illustrious residential skyscraper. Showroom is open for viewing by appointment only. I can't read the floor number. Pacific Star <laughs> Building. Makati, I believe it is, Makati City. And Miss Trump is there. The younger. The younger. Yes. Yeah. She's, um, I guess, welp welcoming you. Do we have a price on any of this? 
down below there's a white banner. Something about Ivanka Trump fine jewelry collection. Oh, God. I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm missing some of this, but there it is. Anyways, it's a new world. David Gurren, Tom Keene, stay with us worldwide, coast to coast. This is Bloomberg. David, bring in our distinguished guest uh, from Southeast Asia. Yeah, great to have with us Yakagir Aziz. He's the head of Emerging Markets Asia Economic Research at J.P. Morgan. He's the former head of the China Division at the International Monetary Fund. He joins us on our phone line. Great to speak with you uh, once again. And let, let's dig into emerging markets in Asia here for a moment. When, when you look at them, when you consider them, do you do that exclusive of China? How big a role does China play in, in the region generally? Uh, I mean, it's, it's very big. Um, I think if you look at uh, you know, just China's uh, exports uh, to um, countries that are not to the non-emerging market countries. So, to the G3 countries, let's say U.S., Europe, and Japan, and you look at you know what goes into China from the region uh, to support that trade. It's massive. Uh, so, inter-regional trade. Uh, if you break down the, uh, you know, the emerging markets, uh, Asia as a whole, I would say about a third of the trade that uh, countries do outside of China in the region is essentially related to the demand uh, that goes from, you know, the, the exports that uh, China does to G3 countries. Uh, then there is, of course, you know, China's own demand for domestic uh, consumption. Uh, and that's rising. Uh, it's still not the big driver of exports that come out from the region into China, uh, but, it's, but it's getting there. Uh, so, you know, both, if, if you take the two together, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a pretty big deal for um, the rest of the region, uh, what, hap- what happens to China. We talked to a lot of investors and economists here in the U.S., uh, who say that trade policy, U.S. trade policy, is a huge uh, X factor for U.S. investors. From where you sit, for investors in Asia, how does the rhetoric from the White House ring out across uh, across the Pacific? How, how big an X factor is it for you? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big thing. I mean, if you think about where we were just before the election results, let's say November 6th, uh, we had gone through almost about four or five months before that of a reasonably strong, um, you know, emerging market outperformance, asset outperformance versus developed markets, um, you know, growth which had been sliding down. And I'm talking about overall emerging markets now from 2010 right up to 2015 had begun to stabilize and show some recovery. And, and uh, you know, people had... If you, if you looked at their 2017 and 18 forecast back in November of 2016, almost everyone would be uh, looking at some modest recovery taking place across uh, the emerging market world. And that was essentially that was driving this outperformance of emerging market assets versus GM assets. And then came uh, the surprise election result and the inference that people drew were twofold, right? One mm-hmm. was that um, you would get a fiscally, a fiscal stimulus in, uh, in, the, in the U.S. to push up U.S. growth, and that would have the inevitable consequence of raising uh, global financial, uh, tightening global financial conditions, which is bad for Asia. And the other one was that it could also be accompanied by trade right. protectionism, which was directly bad. So uh-huh. the combination of two of them, you saw 
November and uh, December, a significant amount of capital outflows that left emerging markets, including in Asia. So it, it doesn't matter uh, what the rhetoric is. And, and as the rhetoric calmed down over January, February, March, you saw capital flows back into emerging markets. Right. You, you wrote wonderful work over 10 years ago with Eswar Prasad for the International Monetary Fund. You were focused on growth. We all are now, and there is a mystery to emerging market growth. Is the global, to use two big words, is the globalization yonder and the capitalism of EM the same now as when you wrote those iconic pieces with Dunaway and, and uh, Prasad? Um, I think the biggest change that has taken place, I would say, by the, when we had written that piece and now, is that at that point in time, all of us sort of thought that globalization or the expansion of trade uh, may slow down, but it wouldn't, uh, you know, disappear. Uh, if you look at what's happened since 2010, the global trade has, has languished, and over the last two years, in volume terms, uh, it's turned negative. Uh, in the last two years also, global trade has expanded at a pace lower than GDP, which hasn't happened over 20, 30 years. And if you look at emerging market growth, and I usually do this when I'm making a presentation, I have emerging market real GDP growth, and I have global trade growth. Uh, you know, the two lines are basically the same lines. Uh, so in a sense, emerging markets over that period from early 2000 to, mm -hmm. I would say, 2010, benefited enormously from, you know, I, I use the word easy growth, uh, so to speak. Uh, but really, emerging markets didn't really have to do any major uh, structural reform. Right, internally. right. What about and now? And they could still grow. And now that 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 two percent, three percentage points of growth that globalization gave emerging markets is gone. Yeah. And now it's the hard stuff. You have to go back and do the ones that you have postponed over the last ten years because you had that cover, which was globalization delivering you two hundred and fifty, three hundred basis points of growth. And that's where I think we are, that emerging markets really need to rebalance uh, their growth drivers. You know, I'm not saying that you abandon exports, uh, but you can't completely rely only on one engine of growth, which is exports. You have to start looking at domestic demand as a source of growth. And unfortunately, apart from China, I don't see any emerging market actually shifting their design of policy and reforms uh, to move towards more domestically driven growth. Is, is the role of central banking changing in, in emerging markets as you see it? Um, you know, uh, yes and no in the sense that if you went back, yeah. let's say, you know, early 2000, uh, central banks at that point in time in emerging market had multiple objectives. Some was development, you have to develop capital markets, some was protective, you have to protect your banking sector. Right. And then there was this very uneasy balance between, you know, do you support the government's fiscal profligacy or you don't? <clears throat> I think emerging market uh, bank, the central banks today have, most of them have, just, right. have, have gone to a point that financial stability and prices are basically yeah. what they should focus on. Let's continue with Jahangir Assis from Singapore today. J.P. Morgan 
Emerging Market Asia Economic Research uh, for uh, the bank and, of course, with his sterling career at the International Monetary Fund of years ago. That was a very important comment there on the new growth for emerging markets. David's going to be very, very uh, different for EM coming up. Let's continue our conversation here with Yohan Giraziz. He's head of Emerging Markets Asia Economic Research at J.P. Morgan, former head of the China Division at the International Monetary Fund, with us on our phone line, sponsored by Spectrum Enterprise, your nationwide provider of scalable fiber network services and managed cloud solutions. A few minutes ago, we were talking about the role of central banks. Let me ask you about communication and transparency. Are, are we getting anything close to a more transparent, more communicative uh, Chinese central bank? They're trying. I, I think the big change took place, you know, when uh, in 2015 they shifted to a basket peg, and the first few days uh, were really dis- disconcerting to the market because no one really knew what this new animal meant. Um, and, and, and you saw that disruption in the market. And the Chinese uh, authorities looked at the disruption, and one of the lessons they learned was that it needed to be properly communicated. And I think that over that period of time, so, you know, uh, December of 2015, uh, you know, throughout 2016, I think they have tried uh, to communicate, you know, better at least the you know, the FX part, the, the foreign exchange part of their policy. Uh, and if you look at, I know, how markets have reacted, the markets have accepted, um, you know, much of their arguments. And, use, and, 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 you know, even in January, February this year, when one, had one you know, where there were concerns that the U.S. could label China an FX manipulator, you did not see the market react, uh, you know, as viciously as it was you know, back then in the early days of the basket peg. So I would say at least in the part of the FX front, they have tried to communicate, and the communication is becoming uh, much better today than in the past. After your tenure at the IMF, you went to India, I believe. You worked with J.P. Morgan there. I wanted to get right. your sense of sort of how this demonetization process uh, is going. I had the, the pleasure of talking with Amartya Sen a couple of weeks back here in New York, got his perspective uh, on, on what he thought was a rather botched operation there, How's it playing out now that, that several months have elapsed? Uh, so, you know, um, you still have a significant amount of excess liquidity sitting with the bank. So if you think about how the demonetization started, uh, you could no longer use your existing notes. So you had to go to a bank, deposit those notes. So the first thing that happened was that bank deposits just went through the roof, almost like additional eight percentage points of GDP came into the banks. Uh, then over the course of the period, uh, people withdrew cash, and uh, given that there were limits to how much cash you could withdraw, just the physical limits, I mean, uh, it, it, it's going to take our senses that another 12, 18 months before all of the cash that people require will be withdrawn from the system. So the first impact on the banking system has been that, you know, that eight percentage points of additional deposit has slowly gone down perhaps around five and a half percentage points uh, at, at, at present, but it's still a very large amount of liquidity sitting in the banking system, and that's clearly worried the Reserve Bank of India. So, you know, um, you know, apart from the growth impact and other such things, there is this, uh, you know, a huge amount of liquidity sitting, and it is going to take another 12 months to, dis- uh, to, 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 to dissipate. Yeah. And so, you know, what does the RBI do uh, at this point? And that's where I think 
uh, is the biggest concern at this point in time, just mm-hmm. from looking, looking at it from a market's point of view. Dr. Aziz, I brought this up with William Rhodes earlier this morning. Let me ask you the same question. Give us a state of the Tigers. There was an iconic moment where these nations coming from a low base that were the Asian yeah. Tigers. How Tigerish right. are the Asian Tigers? I think I think at this point in time, and not this point in time, for quite some time, they have been caught in what is typically known as middle-income trap. Uh, that they reached very quickly the middle-income group, and then, uh, as as in the case with many middle-income countries, particularly in Latin America, uh, the next set of reforms that you need to do to make the next leap that never really came forthcoming. I mean, people got comfortable with their middle-income. Uh, status and uh, no longer was that hunger to keep growth to keep, uh, at the at the six seven percent level, uh, and there was an acceptance that well growth is going to slow down, and the society and the politics and the economy uh, essentially have accepted that middling level of growth. So I think at this point in time, as a general statement, you know, not going through different countries, but as a general statement, it's sort of in that typical middle-income trap that these, yeah. uh, you know, old Asian tigers have been caught into now, right now. When you look at and when you look at emerging markets broadly, uh, emerging markets yeah. in Asia, wh- where is there opportunity that might be ignored or not known about to, to many investors here uh, in, in the states? We talk a lot about China. We talk a lot about India. Increasingly about India. Uh, what, what are some of the smaller markets that are particularly interesting to you right now? Right. So I would say that, you know, uh, keep looking at, I mean, start looking at Indonesia, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, there is, you know, you're, 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 depending upon which side, uh, whether you're a fixed income uh, investor or a equity investor, uh, you have opportunities, for example, there in the sense that this is one economy where, despite political uncertainties and political pressures, have still so far have not abandoned macroeconomic stability for uh, short-term growth. Uh, so I think there is a lot of comfort that fixed-income investors drive, derive from that commitment to macroeconomic stability. At the same time, they have been slowly pushing on uh, you know, diversifying the economy or expanding the economy through infrastructures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is space for equity investors. So I would say, you know, look at Indonesia, uh, you know, their, their commitment so far, despite the fact that you know you have elections coming in 2019, as in India, uh, you should you know you should uh, start looking at that. Uh, beyond the Asian ambit, I would say uh, you know the, 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 the you know the Turkey and Brazil stands out. That uh, I mean, just in case of Tur- in the case of Brazil, uh, you know if they even do half of the structural reforms uh, that they're right. committing to. Uh, it, it is a big deal for for, for well, an economy of the size of Brazil. Uh, similarly yeah. with Turkish, I mean, they don't really need to do all the reforms, even if they do half of them. Right. Uh, these guys could be a very strong economy. Well, Janger, thank you so much. Yanger Aziz with J.P. Morgan Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.
there's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Everything just got short term, David, in the room. When Anthony Cosenzi walks in, we get short term. (laughs) Very short term. Do you want to bring him in? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Tony Wisconsin Portfolio Manager. Well, this is not stochastic. We're not no. doing technical analysis. We did stochastic. Now. Fibonacci has left the building. Uh, Tony, <laughs> great to see you. Great, great to, to see, see you here. How, how would you rate your optimism about the economy, about the market, uh, on this Monday, the 1st of May? Uh, well, we'd say that markets are, to, to a great extent, fully priced for uh, the future of what is to come in Washington. What happened over the weekend with the deal on the budget was nothing surprising. What markets are hoping for and what the leap of faith is all about in the equity market since November is the, the possibility that there'll be some change in Washington from what we've seen, not just in recent months, but for, for years now, which is inaction on the things that would ultimately boost Productivity, which is to say the ability of human beings, and there aren't as many of them entering the labor force these days because of the aging of the population, to produce and demand purchase goods and services. It's difficult for government to do that. Uh, and so we'd say we lack optimism about the long-term story. And by the way, on this, we will be holding in Newport Beach a secular forum next week. Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, will be there. And also Newt Gingrich, the former House Speaker, along with Ben Bernanke. Excuse me. Was Gordon that a Brown. shameless plug? Like shameless never... plug. Do you see how he Important came stuff. on global and worldwide radio well, we, like that? Well, the idea, we're, we're Tom, charging is, guests for those. <laughs> the idea, Tom, is to say that one should be very thoughtful and, and think, think of those names. I mentioned they're all thinking yeah, long term. But, but this about- is—I'm really glad you bring this up. Let's parse it right now. Larry Summers, Lawrence Summers, president of Harvard, former secretary of Treasury, has a secular stagnation feel, which Correct. I'm going to say is more behavioral and more economic output. Chairman Bernanke has a feel. I'll be interviewing him on Wednesday, uh, folks. Look for that. There's He's got a feeling which is a linkage of financial into the monetary system. Which view is preponderant right now at Pimco? We'd say that this, the the fiscal authority has not is is not has not yet taken over from the monetary authority, which is to say that it's the monetary authority that's been carrying uh, the load for years by putting more <clears throat> money enough money in the system to keep it going. But it's 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 insufficient to boost uh, the ability of human beings and the numbers of human beings to produce goods and services. And so, uh, Ben Bernanke understands that that in the end. Productivity is likely to keep uh, the economy from moving at the low level of it, half percent gain the past five years on average, from moving at a quicker pace. And so he's skeptical. He's voiced it, and you'll probably hear that Wednesday, about the ability of government to boost uh, the economic growth on a permanent basis, and hence interest rates uh, will likely stay low. So the Fed's neutral rate, where it's neither putting its foot on the gas or the brake, where the Fed says it's 2.9% these days, it used to be four and a quarter, it probably is 
still low and likely to stay low, although creeping up toward that level. Who knows? Low twos mm-hmm. is what we'd say over the in the years to come. So uh, come come later this week, you'll uh, you'll put on your tevas and shorts and head to Newport Beach, sit in that giant room which looks like a HBS classroom. Correct. So we all gather around. What do you want to hear from Newt Gingrich? It's it's interesting to me that he's going to be there. What's what's the top question that you have for the former Speaker of the House about where things are headed? I'd like to know genuinely whether he believes that the Trump administration will be successful in engineering a productivity miracle. Uh, I'm sure that he's got his view on the ability of the Trump administration to push through legislation that will benefit the economy in the short run, for example, tax cuts for individuals and corporations. But does he believe that government will be able to engage well enough to boost growth on a permanent basis? This is the idea behind a secular form or anyone looking out over a long-term horizon. It's important to have that as a guardrail. So, for example, if we have a view, PIMCO, that interest rates will stay low because of this secular stagnation that Larry Summers speaks to, that'll guide us when we're thinking about short-term fluctuations in the economy that could come from the administration and Washington uh, pushing through a tax cut that boosts growth in the short run. Uh, and, and hence, uh, we don't want to get fooled mm. by that. A miracle is something you hope for, but it's not something you necessarily count on. When you saw that tax proposal unveiled last week, how worried were you about what's baked into that? The, the, the promise, and it is that, for members of this administration that we're going to get the kind of growth that they say we're going to get. One should be deeply skeptical that uh, we'll be able to achieve, uh, as I'm pointing out here, something uh, good in the long run. Think of the U.S. budget. It's $4 trillion. $2.5 trillion of it goes toward entitlements, Social Security, Medicare. Uh, and uh, Medicaid and so on and so forth. 1.5 trillion remains. Yeah. Half of that 1.5 trillion is in defense, which you see is moving upwards. So there's no money to pull from that toward all these endeavors. And that leaves six, seven hundred billion of, of discretionary spending. Next to nothing. Monies that we need uh, for various right. things. Per- and so there isn't enough money. Percolating over the weekend was a usual, they're not going to raise rates three, four, five times, whatever the number is. Lars Christensen at Markets and Money Advisory in Europe writing up, they're not going to raise rates at all. What is the nudge right now that Chair Yellen could really disappoint the GDP optimists, almost be boxed into a corner where she can't raise rates X number of times? Well, the Fed still believes that the uh, NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, full, where the full employment level is, is about 4.7. The jobless rate reported last month was 45 uh, and is estimated in this coming Friday to show a 4.6 print for uh, mm-hmm. April. It's below since it's below Nairu, uh, and since the Fed is filled with Phillips curve advocates, in other words, uh, individuals that believe growth will ultimately lead to inflation. Ultimately, the Fed will decide that for risk management purposes to keep moving, although gradually. So, so long as there's progress, meaning job growth more than 100,000 per month, Agreed. the Fed okay. will continue to Lower move. Number. Why yeah, 100,000? Yeah. Because, and job growth yeah, is average yeah. over 200, because the labor force only grows by that amount. It has the last few years. And so anything above but, but 100 are, are you pushes as, the job rate down. Tony, are you as Mr. Short-Term Guy, are you just saying to yourself, I'm going to frame two or three or even four rate hunts, not a year out, but just X out. You're in the mood of saying they've got to go higher. So long as it, it seems that the, the economic growth is above potential. Where's the wage Fed growth? staffers say it will be through 2019. 20- well, you saw Friday in anyone that saw the data, <clears throat> Employment Cost Index, a comprehensive um, survey of businesses on wages and salaries and all the various I missed that. I was people. looking at the Rangers' it, defense. It is the best, <laughs> the highest, the fastest gain 
in in eight years, and for wages okay. and salaries, Fair. seven years. And so there is Fair. some movement, and so long as there's progress, um, Janet Yellen will say, "Let's okay. uh, on risk management for risk management purposes, let's keep going." One minute. What's a question you would ask Ben Bernanke? I've got some work to do here. I got to get ready for this interview. It's it's regarding, and since he'll be talking with Larry Summers next week, this idea of secular stagnation. Does he think we can get out of this funk? Uh, the, okay. Will government I be effective you, enough? Because he knows he he wanted to hand the ball over to the fiscal authority, but couldn't. And so does right. he think that it'll ever happen? I promise you I'll ask the question. And he'll give you complete say, credit as well. It's about 50-50 <laughs> whether I'll give you credit. <laughs> folks, this is what we do all the time. We make fun Still of questions. it. But, <laughs> you know, we, we kid about it, folks, but Tony... Tony Crescenzi is truly the smartest guy you're, you're on short-term paper. I know. And, and bust, John Shire, my colleague. We bust his <laughs> chops constantly about this, but he's exquisite on the dynamics of the short-term market. And Thank I will you. be honored to ask to ask Chairman Bernanke a question from Anthony Crescenzi of PIMCO. Tony, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And this is going to be fun. We're going to spend an extended amount of time with Douglas Cass in Florida with Seabreeze uh, Partners. Mr. Cass uh, said he would not agree to come on until the Yankees were two and a half games in front of the Boston Red Sox. And he joins us uh, this morning. Doug, you got to admit, the American League East is just a lot of fun already in May. Boy, is this fun. I think we have six players batting over 300. Yeah. Tied for Baltimore, 15 and 8. And you're young. Yeah, yeah, I love this. I love the new Yankee. It was a matter. It was. It's just a matter of time, you know, till the Deadwood, the old vet, yeah. veterans were taken off the the rosters. But the, I, you're right. Baseball is really fun. It's not just yeah. the Yankees. And I, you know, I sat in the Doug Cass seats at Yankee Stadium last year, folks. Uh, I paid for them, folks. Just so you understand. <laughs> and I watched Mr. Girardi do his magic in the dugout. And Mr. Gardner of left field, he's an enthusiastic guy. He's going the whole game. I mean, you you think it was an ice hockey game or something. (laughs) He's batting 200, I think. Well, Um, he's an old guy. By the way, my tickets, I'm a bleacher creature. I know, I was kidding. I I, I read the (laughs) rock star seats, which were fun. Uh, Help us here with your rock star call. You are short, you're cautious. No, you're not. You're long, and you're long Twitter. State the case for a value for Twitter. Look, uh, Twitter is a business that has plenty of warts, but there's free cash flow and there's a, a valuable user base. Um, you buy cyclical companies at or near their trough. Um, uh, Twitter is no longer an eroding business. There's stability in EBITDA and free cash flow. Second quarter should be a trough. As I said, the massive uh, user base of 320 million is a big number, and it's growing in the last quarter. Users have value. Engagement is fine. It's a bite-sized morsel. Um, the uh, um, equity capitalization uh, plus net cash is only about $9 billion. I think you're going to see a 13 to $14 billion bid ultimately for the company. You have to remember that Google, Facebook, and Apple, likely suitors, have basically a zero cost of capital, David and Tom. So it, it's immediately accretive to an acquiring company. It's easy to kill $400 million or so in, in stock-based compensation for another public company as the groom, and it's probably also accretive for private equity. 15% of the stock is short. 
Um, and this is a very good example of a stock um, where the chart is lousy. Mm-hmm. There's universal hatred. Mm-hmm. The former, the uh, initial investors hate the company. Mm-hmm. The former managers hate the company. The analysts hate the company. Mm-hmm. Um, the strategists hate the company. I love this company. Are there other tech companies you like as well, or is Twitter occupying sort of a, a place alone in your portfolio? Twitter has a sole uh, position. Um, meanwhile, you know, they have a Yuma, I have failed to mention they have a net cash position of $2 billion. I was going to say so, three. It's huge. Yeah, $2.8 billion. Yeah. Um, we round up here, Doug. Just, you know, <laughs> no, I, I, it's, it's 2017. We round up. Help us here with your short call. People know you, Doug Cass, for caution on the market. You've enjoyed a market that goes, 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 goes. Reaffirm caution sure, at Dow sure. 20,940. Um, let me give you some um, new thoughts and uh, limit my uh, sound bites. I, I, I basically feel that we continue to see a broad and important market top that's being put in. But tops are processes. And it's important to recognize that there are a number of structural influences like risk parity, volatility trending, the popularity of exchange of exchange traded funds. This these are all serving to extend the rally beyond where it might have stopped without them, particularly in a small universe of stocks like the FANG stocks, double A, F A A N G type. You had a technical analyst I sent you an email on uh, in the early hours, around 6.15 or so this morning, who talked about the widening participation in the market, and I respectfully disagree. Uh, in total return terms, the FANG stocks accounted for a third of the S&P's gain this year. Uh, Apple, the stock, um, the top stock by market cap, cap, obviously, was responsible for more than 10% of the S&P uh, return. So the one thing that Bob Farrell, my friend and legendary technical analyst Merrill Lynch right. taught me is that a narrowing advance or breadth is not a market-friendly condition. Look, investing is getting harder and harder, even though the averages seem to be elevated. Um, it's yeah. not easier in a world dominated by these quant funds, machines, and algos. And how else do you explain yeah. the high-profile hedge fund closures yeah. in the last couple of years? Let's come back. I mean, the whole thing yeah. is reminiscent of portfolio insurance, which caused the 87 Oh, we remember that. DeGuerre yeah, doesn't remember this, that. Yeah, you I and call I, this portfolio ins- yeah. insurance part two. Doug, it was a few years ago you were at a small startup for Inkid or Peabody. Uh, as a housing analyst, as you know, four gajillion young bucks are studying for the CFA exam, which will be here in June. Is there a future in the securities analysis that you were weaned on? I think that the business is more as as we move towards this, this risk parity, volatility trending, quantitative strategies, and the explosion of the popularity of exchange traded funds. It's becoming increasingly hard for even the brightest hedgehoggers to differentiate themselves and add value. Um, so I think the business will contract in size. There will always be a place for CFAers. Will the business come inside? I'm fascinated. Folks, let's frame this for our radio audience uh, worldwide. The buy side takes the research and uses it. 
the sell side sells the research for commission dollars, et cetera. There's a raging debate in London how you're going to pay people on the sell side for their intellectual work. Or, Doug, would you predict that the intellectuals will go directly in to the buy side That's where they have their question. own securities analysis? That's a great question. You know, It's my only good one this week. I got it out of the way. The Bernanke doesn't get any good morning. questions. Yeah. The investment business is this great pendulum. When I graduated uh, business school at Wharton, um, I went to work in the research department at Putnam Management. We had extraordinary analysts, Jeff Tabak, who has a firm yes, called yes, Miller well, Tabak, yeah. uh, Larry Haverty, who's now with Gabelli and yeah. Company, um, just just a bunch um, of, of you know, a, a cadre of nine to ten solid guys. Yeah. We rarely, uh, our original research was better than the street at that point. Um, and that was true for FIDO. It was true for Mass Financial Services um, and a number of other money management firms. That changed. Um, and it sort of, there it, 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 it was an inflection point uh, during this, the Spitzer-induced legislation period, yeah. which was the outgrowth of the bear market. And 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 um, I think it's so you saw um, a contraction in, on the research on the sell side, um, and I think that that's going to continue. Well, and I think that we're going to revert okay. back to the '70s, where where Putnam and Fidelity's in-house research was superior to that of you, Merrill. And you can pull your lapels out again, like you've got in the closet, <laughs> David. Girl, I want to point out that the only reason Doug Cass took the job at Putnam was to get Red Sox tickets. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> I, I really, I enjoyed the games at Fenway, Doug. Uh, when, when the Red Sox weren't playing, <laughs> that's good. Thank you. Of course, back then they were in fifth place in a sixteen league. We won't go there, Doug. Let me go to another shorty. Years announced here on April the twenty sixth. I'm shorting the tax reform news, which appears to be an all in bet on supply side economics as ability to catalyze domestic economic growth. How are you regarding what's going on in Washington these days? Well. This whole stock market rise is a function, David, of the animal spirits being le- uh, elevated. Uh, which which you always point out are, are dumber than... Right. than <laughs> right. I said the reason they call it animal spirits rather than human spirits is because animals are a lot dumber than humans. Um, so the administration has made this promise of tax reform and fiscal initiatives. Um, to me, the Trump's tax reforms are, are dead on arrival. It's a one-pager of 12 bullet points, which shows a lack of critical thinking. Uh, it's simply a wish list with no details. It, it is really not a proposal. It should be called an outline, as so much is unspecified. Uh, so I worry about black swans, but I'm also worrying today about orange, an orange swan. And my bottom line is that Trump is going to make market volatility and economic uncertainty great again. Um, I think he's almost taking a mythical path in this tax reform. Yeah. You know, he may be able to temporarily hold up the sweep of automation and globalization, but yeah. cajoling a few companies to keep jobs at home by bolstering yeah. inefficient and uncompetitive enterprises is likely only to temporarily stave off market forces. Douglas Cass joining us from Florida. Doug, I want to rip up the script here. You recently dined at Mar-a-Lago. How is Mar-a-Lago perceived by the locals of Florida? How is it perceived away from what we see with the president? Well, I'm right in the middle of Palm Beach. I live on the island, so I'm like, I'm, I would say, eight blocks or nine blocks from Mar-a-Lago. And the first reaction is that it's a disaster traffic-wise. Mm. I mean, 
there's, there's basically three bridges that go from yeah. the island of Palm Beach to West Palm Beach, two of which are being renovated, uh, including the south, the southern uh, boulevard bridge, which goes directly. You could see uh, Mar-a-Lago from there. So it is a total disaster. And um, when the president of China, she, um, he stayed at the O Hotel, which is down the block from Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there were barricades, cement barricades, 20 feet high. So the traffic is terrible. So that's the first thing. Second thing is for people that are sort of, sort of Trump sycophants, and I don't, I'm trying to be objective, uh, it's attracted a lot more people to Mar-a-Lago and to Trump International, the golf course. And as a result, he's doubled the uh, initiation fee. So people seem to like the fact that they could cavort and socialize with the president. At the same time, the traffic is, is difficult. Mm-hmm. So those are my general reactions. I've been there three times. I was there the night the president, she was there. You were there? Yes. And um, I actually, I'm a Democrat, but I was, you know, I have Republican friends, too. Really? And my friend, <laughs> it's a my surveillance friend who is a highly placed Republican, I won't mention his name, but we were at the number one table and we could see President Xi yeah. and our president uh, right in front of us. It was exciting. Is the food as good as at the White House Correspondents' <laughs> Dinner? <laughs> the food at Mar-a-Lago is sensational. Okay, we'll go with that. Doug Cass, thank you so much Always for, great for a briefing you, yeah. on uh, the, the uh, immediacy of, of being. There's nothing like being there. Doug Cass is certainly uh, there. We thank him for making clear his political affiliations as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.